You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphian Video for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. The development of our conscience is a very significant part of our walk toward the kingdom of God. Our conscience is based on faith and we need to exercise our conscience based on God's word, learning to obey him. Then God will activate and cleanse our conscience and the obstacles we may face. Hope you enjoy this episode. Until next time, may God bless you. Amen. Imagine the existence of a group of theologically conservative and dedicated people. They are highly knowledgeable of God's word and ready and willing to enact the rituals and habits that the Bible describes as essential to godly living. Imagine they focus their entire religious lives around becoming habituated to doing what the Bible says, spending much of their time and energy in disciplining their bodies. And imagine that Jesus, seeing all of this, warns these highly habituated people that they are in danger of hellfire. Because he does. He says, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind leaders, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate that the outside also may be clean. And we see in the pursuit of eternal life and in the fear of losing it, the Pharisees relied on a scrupulous examination of law and a strict obedience that made worship mechanical and comparative. It elevated ritual and in the process elevated self and self-image at the cost of faith, love, grace, and a good conscience. Now, over the next few studies, we want to explore how God works in our lives to develop a conscience motivated by faith and love and how powerful that force can be in our lives. Because what God is looking for in each of us, especially in these times when the only thing we are accountable is to him, is what his word can accomplish in us, in completely renovating not just our habits, but our hearts and our lifestyles, so that we end up becoming a reflection of his son in a way that's described for us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 where he tells us that the end of the commandment, the whole purpose of the word of God in our lives is charity or love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So just as a brief brief introduction to some of the things we'll be talking about tonight and over this weekend is the importance of choosing life making those active decisions that we need to in our lives, developing our conscience, 
And then finally, we'll end our studies over the weekend by looking at the thoughts and intents of our hearts. Um, tonight, we want to look at very simple things. We want to look at the divine wisdom of giving us free will, the challenges to our active conscience, and the goal that we all have, which is to exercise our conscience daily. Now, that sounds exhausting, but we'll see how practical and relevant that is to us. Now, first of all, uh, let's think back to the very beginning. And if you want to turn with me to John chapter 1, we'll review the introduction and what is really a basic first principle to us. Uh, but I think that one of the amazing things about these first principles that we believe and hold to is that they are so practical. So let's turn to John chapter 1 and take a look at this um, fundamental theme, I, I think we'll call it. Um, as John describes God's intention that he's had from the very beginning of creation, where it says that in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by it and without it was not anything made that was made. In it was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in darkness and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, <clears throat> that word, word that we encounter in John 1 we may know to be the word logos. And this term was familiar to the Jews. And in their writings and in the writings of the Greeks um, leading into this time in 600 BC, a man named Heraclitus used the term logos to designate the divine reason or plan which coordinates a changing universe. What we're saying is this word has to do with purpose. So in the beginning was the word, but that word had purpose. Now think about that, that everything God does, he does intentionally. Everything he does has a purpose. His words and his thoughts and his actions are all perfect. And they all lead to good. And they're all free will. They are all an active representation of who he is because he is good. And if we think about this idea of intention or purpose, it's the major theme in scripture. That every action comes as an extension of who he is. Now, every one of us uh, could recite, I'm sure, or maybe even sing, uh, Beloved, let us love one another because love is of God. Now, if you were to look at that phrase in the Greek, what it means is love is an extension of God. It comes from him. It's who he is. Everything he does comes from this purpose. Everything that God asks of us has to do with choices, with intention. From Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to Noah to Babel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and beyond, God asks humanity to be intentional, to be purposeful, to choose, 
And he consistently asks us to do that in the context of free will, to exercise free will. For example, if we went to Deuteronomy 30 that we listed as our reading this evening, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verses uh, 11 to 20, we find this call to action of Moses to the people of God. And in Deuteronomy 30, which we know to be the last day of his life, his last words to the people of Israel before they go to take the promised land. He says in Deuteronomy 30 and verse 11, But this commandment which I command thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, Who shall go up to heaven for us to bring it unto us, that we might hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, Who shall go over to the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? What he's saying is, what he's talking about, it's not impossible. It's not out of our reach. He says, The word is very nigh unto thee, in thy mouth and in thy heart, that thou mayest do it. See, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil. It's a choice. It's an intention. In that I command thee this day to love Yahweh thy God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and Yahweh thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. So this is the picture of what God asks of us. In fact, if we go on to verse 20, he says that you may love Yahweh your God, that you may obey his voice and you may cleave unto him. For he is your life and your length of days that you may dwell in the land which Yahweh swear unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to give them. So this is the theme that we make a conscious decision. And why is that so important? Well, we have to ask the question. When God perfects the saints, when you and I, Lord willing, are perfected, freed from this nature which we have, given eternal life, will we become robots? And the answer is no. We will have the blessing of being active in applying our conscience, but without a nature biased to selfishness. And that's essential for filling the earth with God's glory. We will be actively putting into practice what God is teaching us now. To live not by fear, but with a clear conscience. I'd like to quote from a first principle book that you might be familiar with. It's called Key to Understanding the Understanding of the Scriptures. And there's a section in it which I find very helpful on why God permitted free will. And here's what he says. It is often suggested that God would have done better if he had created man perfect from the beginning. And certainly that would have prevented the record of trouble and evil that man has manifested since creation. But it would also have interfered with the development of such virtues as faith, love, voluntary obedience, mercy, forgiveness, and so forth. It is these that God desires to see manifested above all else. This is understandable. And this is what I found really helpful. And think about this in our own lives. What do we desire and treasure most in our relationships with one another? 
is is it sorry it is the spontaneous affection and loving obedience of a child the faithful loyalty of a friend in time of adversity the free offer of pardon or forgiveness when we have sinned god delights sorry is there any real pleasure in the mere forced obedience of a child or loyalty from an acquaintance that we must buy to receive there's none and so it is with god if he had created man as a mere automaton who had to obey him like some animated machine it would mean that the greatest pleasure derived from the attributes of a love of a loving character would be denied him so that he would find little pleasure in creation god delights in voluntary acts of love and obedience extended towards him and he will suitably reward them and so free will allows us to make choices because god is a god of love and he wants us to choose good he wants us to choose him because we know him and because we know by experience that his ways are good and right and gracious and they result in good in short he wants us to live by our conscience And so the challenge is, how do we actively and consciously love God? And how do we present, prevent ourselves from reverting to an automatic, inactive life? How do we avoid a seared conscience? How do we avoid choosing the fear of what others think of us and choosing instead a reverence for God? And so tomorrow we want to look at how we can develop that conscience. But I really want to bring up one more point, and that is perhaps the biggest challenge to an active conscience. All right. Um, and this is where we go to our relevance of lockdown that we've all experienced in some form or other. Um, our routines have all changed and forced to change. Our contributions to the ecclesia has changed. Our activities and our plans as families as individuals and as ecclesias have all changed and we've had to reassess and reprioritize and rediscover why we do what we do now since the rediscovery of the truth we formalize what we believe and in the formalization of our worship we've developed many routines and habits as ecclesias as families and personally to help us in our worship to reduce complexity, to create a measure of order. But sometimes, some of these routines have presented challenges to our faith, as they, if applied improperly or inappropriately in our lives, can actually, according to Christ and the apostles, result in us focusing on the external, on the outside, what people see. They place our focus on our own abilities instead of grace and forgiveness and dependence on Christ. Now, I want to pause and say habits are useful in many aspects of our worship. In fact, there are many secular scholars who have written books on how to develop healthy habits in our own lives. I'm sure we've read books to this effect. And one of the most famous books on the subject was written by an individual named Charles Duhigg in a book called The Power of Habit. 
And I want to read a quote from it and ask you, when you read this, to ask yourself, what is the challenge to our faith with habits? All right. Here's what he says. And this is from an interview which quotes the book. He says this. It's, it's where the, the, the book says this. As soon as the behavior becomes automatic, the decision-making part of your brain goes into a sleep mode of sorts. In fact, the brain starts working less and less, says Duhigg. The brain can almost completely shut down. And he says, and this is a real advantage, because it means you have all of this mental activity you can devote to something else. Now, do you see the challenge of this to our faith? What he's talking about is that the brain is a muscle. That decision-making is exhausting. And that a great way to free up mental space is to automate what we can. But do we see the problems hinted at when it comes to living the truth? Now, life is easier and sometimes better with habit. If we rise at a certain time of day, we do readings on a regular schedule, we have the same breakfast every morning, we have a predictable format for the memorial meeting. All of these habits can be helpful in freeing up our mental space to focus on what really matters. Healthy habits do help us when we don't feel like doing what we should. But the challenge is this. When we apply habit and routine, to moral matters. When we remove the need to activate our conscience, we behave robotically, not intentionally. We show up, we follow the rules, we pass the bread and the wine, but we stop thinking about why we do what we do. We don't understand God's character behind those rules. We don't choose good, we just do things. And we come, become like kids where we do things because, well, do we have to? Or because we were told to? And we don't understand why. And we can even resent having to do them as a result. And God wants us to engage our brain when it comes to moral decision making. And when we aren't exercising our conscience, we actually begin to lose the ability to discern right and wrong. We begin to fall into the trap that we see in scripture, where we elevate the ritual and routine to be the end goal, when the end goal is the development of our character. And when Jesus entered the picture and he started to challenge the Pharisees' rituals, they ended up writing him off as a radical because they didn't understand why they did what they did. They couldn't see Christ in the law, just that they were supposed to do it. And actually, this is a problem that Paul addresses to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 5. And it's, and it's beautiful. And it, I think, demonstrates uh, this point. Now, I have COVID legs. I haven't left my house as often as I should. And I went hiking two days ago. I, I hiked uh, eight or nine kilometers, which is not significant. It was up a mountain, but it was exhausting. At the end of it, actually today, two days later, my legs are sore. Uh, and, and this is the point that I think he's drawing on here in Hebrews 5. He says, for when for the time you ought to be teachers, these, these, these Jews which had the word of God, they grew up with it. They memorized it. He says, 
you should be the experts in these things. He says, you have need that one teach you again what be the first principles of the oracles of God. And that's to say, do you understand what this reveals, the law, this Bible about who God is? And you got to go back to the beginning. And we're become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a baby. But strong meat belongs to them that are full of age. And here's this key idea. Even those who by reason of use, practically applying this word in our lives, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And so he says it's the use of this word, understanding God, seeing God's character in this and how it's trying to shape our character that exercises our ability to discern good and evil. We challenge our decisions with this book. We examine ourselves against Christ, against David, against all the amazing examples that we see in Scripture. And we think about what this is teaching us about God and how it shapes who we are to be. And we do so consciously and purposefully. And it's that heart motivated by God's word and a belief in him that when exercised in active decision making allows us to discern both good and evil, to support each other, to encourage each other so that Christ is developed in us. Now, that word exercise, as we wrap it up, that word exercise here actually means to exercise naked. Look it up in your concordance. It means to exercise naked. And he's referring to the Olympic Games, where the athletes perform naked. And why were they exercising naked? One reason was because it allowed them to be unencumbered by anything external. And no doubt we're thinking about what Hebrews has already said in chapter 4, that all things are naked and open to the eyes with whom we have to do. And that's our challenge. I know what you want to see. I know how to behave in a way that makes you happy or makes my parents happy or makes my friends happy. But what are we like under that veneer? Because I think all of us want to be that same person under the veneer, naked and open, as we are from the outside. And that's what lockdown has been for many of us it's been hard because who is holding us accountable there's no one to see us there's no need to put on a show for others no one around except us our bibles our hearts our consciences and god so what do we do well jesus tells us what to do we clean the inside of the cup. We get to know God. We examine ourselves against his character in his word. And we start to exercise our conscience. And so tomorrow we want to ask the question, how do we develop our conscience? How do we be true to it in all circumstances? Thanks.
people want to see the process of how God activates and cleanses our conscience so that we can walk before him with a clear conscience. And we're going to consider as well the obstacles, because at every point in our walk, we have a choice, a choice that God wants us to choose life. If we make the wrong choice, we deactivate our conscience. And unfortunately, as I'm sure we've all experienced at one point or another, can end up with a seared conscience. Now, when we started this study, um, I like to ask people, uh, what are their questions and what things do they wonder about when we talk about the conscience? And here's a few responses that we received. All right. Um, talking to a brother, he said, well, the heart is deceitful and wicked, according to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. So in light of knowing this, how can we trust and rely on our conscience? And then the introspective question, well, is my conscience really clear? Or for those of us at various times in our life, can we reverse the damage? If I've stopped listening to my conscience and I've seared it so that I don't feel anything, is that permanent? I mean, many of us have scars. We know the idea of, of, of damage, literal damage in our skin. Well, is that the same for our conscience? And, and then how do we live in, with a clear conscience toward God while not offending a weak conscience? I'm trying to stand true to my conscience, um, but, but how do I do so in a godly way? Um, and then there's something very practical that the decision we face every day, which is, I'm afraid of the consequences of doing what's right. I might be lonely. I might be um, insulted. I might be unpopular. I might even lose my job if I do what's right. And so we're facing this struggle. And how can we set ourselves up for success as we grow, as we grow towards uh, a fuller showing of God's character and in the character of Jesus Christ? Uh, one thing that we do want to look at and, and want to establish clearly that it is possible in this life to live with a clear conscience. Um, that sounds daunting. But we'll explain what we mean by looking at a few passages in Scripture. So the first one we want to look at is in 2 Timothy. Uh, if you want to look at your conscience, First uh, and 2 Timothy talks about these principles a lot. Um, but in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and we're quoting from the ESV, he says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And we can look at Paul. This is at the end of his life. Second Timothy is the last letter we believe that we have on record. Um, and we know that Paul made a lot of serious mistakes. Um, things that we would, God willing, never attain to. Uh, the challenges were in his persecution of the believers falsely. And yet he can come to the point where he serves God with a clear conscience. Uh, in fact, um, in Acts 23, um, in his trial, he says, uh, earnestly beholding the council, he says, men and brethren, Paul says, I have lived in all good conscience before God unto this day. And, and interestingly, for saying this, he's smitten because the council didn't believe that one could live with 
a good conscience. Just to show the challenges that, yeah, it's a real struggle to see how we can do this. And Lord willing, over this process, as we uh, consider this tonight, and if you have a piece of paper, you might find it useful to uh, to turn it sideways and get ready because we're going to work and build out a flow chart of how Scripture presents this process of the development of our conscience. And, um, and, and one more that we'll look at in this context is Acts 24, verse 16, where he says, and this is actually what, started the study uh, for Sister Naomi and I uh, was this passage here where Paul says, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. And and when we looked at this, and there's uh, other topics that we can consider that we won't have time to this weekend, but that is the real challenge. How can we live with a clear conscience towards God and at the same time, man? Uh, but But it's possible at least to strive to that. And it's, um, it's, it's going to be a daily process that we work through, um, but it is an important one. Now, we're going to go back to the reading that we had written for us, uh, read for us this morning by Charles. And that's in 1 Timothy, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 5. And I want to take a look at this passage. And I want to look at this and, and see that this is actually giving us a framework of how our conscience is being developed, all right? So he says in the beginning, now the end of the commandment is charity or love out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. So he says the end goal is a pure heart, a good conscience and unfeigned or sincere faith. Now, and, and you can turn on your mic for this. If the end is a good conscience, this verse also outlines for us the beginning. According to 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, I'm going to let you take a stab at it. What is the beginning? What is the start of the process? Kind of have to meditate on it for a little bit. But does anybody want to take a stab at it? And just shout it out. I've had to hide my camera, so I don't know. Um, Who's on? What do we got? Uh, are you meaning the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart? So, so the end is the end state that we're going for is a pure heart, a good conscience, and an unfeigned faith. But what is the starting point uh, in in this verse? So we're there. I just want to just establish it there. And it is, I'll give you five seconds if somebody wants to get, take another stab at it. Uh, oh, yes. Um, is it the receiving of the commandment? Yes, that's what I was looking for. And and the right, whoever said that as well, the opposite, you're right, we don't start in that place. We start with the opposite, but it's the receiving of the commandment. So, if you want to say, yeah, the opposite, we don't have a good conscience. We don't, we don't even know what our conscience is. But once the word, the commandment enters, the end, that's the beginning of the development of our conscience. And the end state that we're looking at and looking for is a good conscience. So, I mean, it's kind of obvious, but, but that's what Timothy gives for us as a frame. Paul says in this book of Timothy, uh, as the framework, we start with the commandment and its end goal, the purpose of the commandment is not so that we have laws and rituals, but so that we live lives where love 
is active and pure, uh, and, and it comes from a pure heart with good motives, with a good conscience, and, and with unfeigned faith. Now, how do we get there? Well, the conscience part is an interesting one. We'll take a second to look at this word conscience. So this word conscience um, means, um, well, it's the word synodesis, and it's conscience of anything. But the, the meaning of it is this idea of to seeing in one's mind with oneself. Uh, the, the, the idea that we, we would call today self-awareness, um, self-examination, uh, introspection, it's examining our own hearts and our minds. And this is the key with our conscience. It's not me examining you and your walk before God. The conscience is 100% introspective. It's God's word in my heart activating my own self-examination. Now, aside from God and Christ, we are the only ones that can really see our hearts and understand our motives. So it's fitting that our conscience is there as an internal accountability to God. And so just to map this out in this process here, uh, here's what we're looking at. And we're going to build on this. So this is this chart if you're taking notes. Um, we have the end, which is love out of a pure heart, a good conscience and sincere faith. Or And the, the idea of sincere faith is faith without hypocrisy. Uh, that's what the Greek means. Um, but the beginning point here is the commandment. So the commandment enters... And it starts this process in our lives. Um, that good conscience can only be affected by the word. And it's that famous verse that we know uh, that builds on this, which gives it power, which is Romans 10, verse 17. If you're looking for a memory verse that you haven't already memorized, I'm sure most of us have. It's faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it's fitting that the starting point is the commandment because the commandment when we hear it can generate faith or belief in us. And, and this is a simple, but a challenging question that we're going to see is the key to this. Do we really believe God? Do we trust that he's at work in our lives? Now you may have heard this example, but you know, if, if I told you, there's a fire outside your house. Get outside right now. If you couldn't see it, the only reason that you would listen and do it is if you believe me, right? If you didn't believe me, you'd sit there and continue on. Now, Lord willing, there's no fire outside. But the point is there that if you really believe God, if you believe his word, then we'll do it. Uh, but there's another level, which is, do we trust that he's at work in our lives? Do we trust that he's at work in COVID? Now, it's very tempting for us to, to complain about it and to be upset and, and to just get frustrated about the situation we're in. It's hard to be isolated. But what if God is saying, this is me working in your life. It's your opportunity for growth. It's your opportunity to to come to a better understanding of his purpose in your life. And because he wants us in the kingdom, this is an essential process of our character development. That's faith in God. That's belief based on what we know about who God is. Some of the things we talked about last night in our devotion, 
for meditation. Okay, so we have this beginning picture where faith uh, appears. Now, did you notice at the end, in that end of our readings this morning, and first uh, this evening, sorry, First uh, Timothy chapter one and verse nineteen, he says he combines the two. He says holding faith and a good conscience, because those two together are essential. You know, you might you might see it there in, in verse nineteen, but these two together are actually. Uh, the, the, sorry, verse 19 is a parallel structure. And, and what I mean is he starts with a concept and one leads to the other. And, but he repeats that same structure in the second half. So he says, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, what's the opposite? He says, which some having put away concerning faith. So if you hold on to your faith, you can maintain a good conscience. But if you put away faith, do you know what we do? What happens to our conscience? He says it's made shipwrecked. So if we hold on to our faith in God, we can respond with a good conscience. We can act according with what we know to be true. But if we put away that faith, if we lose that faith, then we lose the ability to navigate our lives. We lose our good conscience. If we let go of it, then it disappears. So let, let's let's talk about that a little bit using an example. Uh, well, we'll we'll come back to an example in a minute. Um, but but this is this picture. If we turn at this point, this um, if if we we're at this point where faith enters, if we don't maintain it, if we turn aside, we doubt God. We end up in a really sad state. We end up in the state where we're in a shipwrecked conscience. We've lost sight of God. We're afraid. And we lose our way. Now, this analogy that we have here, uh, just to dwell on it for a minute, it's, it's very clear. We're talking about navigation. We're talking about a boat. Now, a boat becomes shipwrecked for several reasons. Uh, it's due to the winds and poor navigation that the boat lose its way. Now, for us, we know that God controls the winds of our life. But he's given us a compass, his word to help navigate those waters. And his winds will never shipwreck our faith. When we rely on his word as our compass, when we relied on what God has offered to us, we might be driven about, but we can find our north and we can head in the direction we need to go. But if we lose that, then we're driven about by every wind of doctrine, as James 1 says, and we're liable to become shipwrecked. We don't know where to go and we have issues navigating. And that's what Paul is saying. If we lose faith in God, in what we know to be true, then our conscience will have issues navigating those challenges in our lives. And our conscience will become shipwrecked. So that's our first step. And if we want an example of this, we see this reinforced in the words of uh, David in Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 16, verse 7. And we see this pattern. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. There's that word entering in. 
Indeed, my conscience instructs me during the night. So the word of God enters, and, and we know what that's like. It can be from our friends. It can be from our parents. It can be from a talk we heard. right? It can be from us studying the word of God ourselves. But it enters in, and often, because of our flesh and our nature, we reject it. And then we come back to it later, and we think about it. And as we meditate on God's word, later on we think, you know what? They were right. And so we get this picture of word and then reflection on the word, which can activate our faith and develop our conscience. Um, but there's another aspect. Let's turn to Psalm 27 uh, and, we'll, um, and we'll move forward in this process as we look at the next step. Now, I've got this on the screen if you want to follow along there or if you want to follow in your own translation. <clears throat> but with that faith, we're going to be able to to make some serious choices in a response to challenges so in psalm 27 in verse 1 he says the lord is my light and my salvation who shall i fear the lord is the strength of my life of whom shall i be afraid though an host he says in verse 3 should encamp against me my heart shall not fear the war should rise against me, and this will I be confident. All right, do you see this picture? This faith in God, this trust in him, allows us to have the confidence to do what is right in the face of adversity. When things seem impossible, if our faith is strong enough in our God, we can more effectively face challenges which seem insurmountable. Now, that's a bold statement. But that's the promise if our faith is having its effective work. But there is a challenge to that. And that's if we move forward a couple of Psalms to Psalm 36. So turn with me to Psalm 36 and we'll see the other side of the picture. What David sees and what he observes and understands when he applies his conscience to what he sees in his life. And so in Psalm 36 and verse 1, he says, The transgression of the wicked says within my heart that there is no fear of God before his eyes. And so just to break that down a little bit, what he's telling us is that when he looks at the behaviors of the wicked, transgression, disobedience of God's word, he recognizes in his heart, his conscience is examining this, and he says, do you know why that transgression happens? Because there's no fear of God before his eyes. So faith allows us to develop a trust and a confidence, that fear of God, that reverence, that when adversity comes, we choose the good. Because we love him and we trust him. We trust, trust that he's right. But on the other side, if we lose that faith in God, we lose that reverence for him, well, we start acting based on other things. We start acting not on our fear of God, but on our fear of man. Or to put it another way, I start to act on my fear of what you think or on somebody else thinks. And I stop choosing the good 
I choose the popular, the acceptable, that which I think will advance myself and my own success, at least in your eyes. So we get this challenge that is being uh, that we're facing, all right? <clears throat> and and it's this picture here of do we choose the fear of God? Do we elevate Him? Do we make God the biggest thing in our life, the strongest thing in our life, the only thing that matters? Or do we lose sight of God and start to look at the challenges? And in Scripture, it's full of examples. All we have to think of is Joshua and the entering of the promised land and the spies and the children of Israel seeing the giants and thinking they're bigger than God. And so there's that adjustment for Caleb and Joshua where they're saying, you know what, God is greater than everything. And if he's promised, then I trust him. I trust he'll, he'll do what's right and he'll take care of us. And, and this, is, this is a huge challenge that we will all face. And if we think that, well, you know what, even the strongest of us is, is, is well, the strongest of us will, will never face this challenge. Just think of, for a minute, of Paul and Peter. Do you remember Peter? He sees a vision from God of a sheep descending with clean and unclean animals. We know this story. It's a Sunday school story, right? And, and what happens is God shows him in this lesson that he wasn't supposed to call Gentiles, non-Jews, common or unclean. He wasn't supposed to have respect of persons and say, well, I'm not going to hang around them. I'm only going to hang around these people. And Peter has this vision three times and he finally gets it. But if you were to take a note in Galatians 2, Paul later encounters Peter in Antioch. And in Galatians 2 verses 11 to 16, if you're taking notes, what, what Peter does is he eats and socializes with the Gentiles, but when the Jewish brothers from Jerusalem come, oh, I know what they think of the Gentiles, right? It's this challenge we face sometimes amongst our peers. Well, I hang around with these people, but oh, I, you know what? I don't want to be um, excluded. So that when these Jews come from Jerusalem, uh, Peter separates himself from the Gentiles and he compromises he literally had a vision from God saying, don't do this. And he struggled with it. And so Paul has to stand up to him, withstand him to the face and say, you're actually disobeying God here. If you keep making these hypocritical decisions. And, and it's because Peter at that moment, just for a moment, and, and they worked through this. But for that moment, Peter cared more about what the Jews from Jerusalem thought than what God did. And I think it's, it might seem huge, but I think it practically something we are all going to face. And, and so we can see these choices that we are, we're getting. We, the word has its effect. We believe it. And when we believe it, we develop a faith in God. But immediately that faith in God is challenged. Do I care more about what you think? Or do I care more about what God thinks? And, and as I make these choices and based on my faith and my belief in who God is, I either get closer to developing a clear conscience or I start again and I start not following through with my conscience. And in fact, I hurt my conscience. <clears throat> All right. So in this picture, um, where are we? Uh, we get to a, a very important uh, step. And that is, Let's look at this critical path again. So we, we, the word has its effect. It shows us what we should do. 
and we believe God, we believe it's right. And then our faith is challenged when we look around and we start to lose sight of God. And then we make that choice. Do I make God the biggest and most important thing in my life? Or do I allow myself to be swayed by, which is essentially popularity, making choices based on what other people think than God, maybe my own selfish heart, or maybe the influence of those around me. Um, but, but at the same time, when that word has its effect, when I believe him and I make God great and bigger, it allows me to act on conviction. <coughs> so conviction is this key, and that's what we want to consider next in this process of the development of our conscience. So uh, we have a couple verses to, to talk through in this, uh, familiar ones. And the first one is very clear. Uh, in John 8, uh, we know this event that uh, Jesus um, has just been talking to the Pharisees. It's been, I believe it was the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, but they bring to him at the end of the feast, a woman caught in, the, in adultery. And, and we know that story. And they say, Moses says we should kill him. The law says we should do this. And technically, he, it is right. According to the law, the, con, the wages of sin is death. That's true. And according to a surface level understanding of the law, the correct action in that circumstance was to have her killed. And then we see Christ's response to applying these principles correctly was to initiate an act of conscience. We know what that happens. Jesus stoops and writes on the ground and he asks a question. And the question is, he that is without sin, or he says, he that is without sin, cast the first stone. The word enters and there's a recognition of their state before God. And they take their eyes off everything else and they start to examine themselves against God. And the conviction of their conscience causes them to take action. And in that circumstance, what that looked like was the eldest, the ones that were most aware of their own sins, of their own inadequacies, of the fact that we're here by God's grace and that the wages of sin for all of us is death. Starting at the eldest, they leave. They recognize their state. And ending at the youngest, one by one, that internal self-examination with no more words, no more conversations, there's nothing to say except to act on what is right. And it's amazing. And, and we know Jesus speaks to the woman and says, go away and sin no more. She had her own conviction, her own response that she had to make. But this is the power of our conscience. It causes us to be convicted. And that conviction, that internal response to God's word is more powerful than any law, any rule, of anything else. 
because we are acting in accordance to what we believe and know to be true. Now, what happens at that point when we reject those feelings where we're compelled to do what's right? Well, the sad truth, if we reject our conscience, it stops having its effect. And eventually we end up, as Paul says again in Timothy, but in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, that the Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith. So they lose that first step. Giving heed to seducing spirits, doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, not being truthful, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now, this, this is an amazingly challenging thing. But I think we know it. that first time we lie, that first time we turn our eyes away or close off our mind to the word of God. It bothers us. But every time that we continue to ignore it or in the case, for example, we see often in the New Testament of stopping our ears because we just don't want to let the word in. We turn to escapism. We turn to other ways of coping, but not addressing the root. And all of a sudden it becomes easier to ignore it and easier to continue on that path, which we, which we once knew was wrong. But now, eventually, we might end up saying, well, what's wrong with that? This is what we face. This is our challenge. And if we want an example of it, because I think that for me, these are, these are good principles. And we can all come to these and, and say, yeah, amen, I agree with this. But the key is to see it in action um, because these are the things we see in Saul's life. We think of, of King Saul in the Old Testament. He is faced. He's describing every one of us as we face different challenges which challenge our conscience and the development of it and the opportunity to respond in faith. So, for example, we have the situation of Saul and Agag, right, where he's told to kill the Amalekites. And uh, first of all, um, he is told to wait for Samuel. But what happens? He's afraid. He even says to Samuel as much, I was afraid of the people. The people made me do it. I, I thought they were going to run away. And so I forced myself to, to, to disobey your commandment. Right? And, and that's... That's an example where he's faced with a challenge. Everybody's panicking. What am I going to do? Am I going to stand up for what's right? Or am I going to bow to the will of others? And, and we, we know what happens to the point that he says, because, and this is the key. He says, because you have rejected what? My word that God rejected him from being king. Because he rejected the beginning part of the development of his conscience. Well, God says, I can't work with that. Until we start listening to the word, God can't have that effect in our life. But let's look at another example. We have Saul in the cave, right? Where, where David cuts off the piece of his garment. And, and honestly, it's a good moment because he pricks the conscience of Saul. Not to say that David, David's conscience was also pricked because 
of how he handled the situation. But Saul, for a moment, has his conscience pricked. But it isn't long before he's after David again, chasing him because he cares less about what God says and more about what people think of him. And he's holding on not to trust in God, but trust in himself. And the end result is that he loses his way. He shipwrecks his conscience and he tries to kill God's anointing. And, and we know envy and we know what it looks in our lives and how destructive it can be to others. And certainly how destructive it can be in our own lives for ourselves and our own conscience. And we have the final end, we might say. And there are more examples. But Saul and the witch of Endor, where God has told him that I, I'm not going to hear you. And he wouldn't give him the answer he wanted because Saul wouldn't repent. And eventually he gets to the point where his conscience is so seared that he says, well, I'm going to get the message I want. I'm going to go off and find a witch. Because if God won't answer me, then maybe a witch will. And, and there is this sad state before God. All right. So how do we repair our conscience? And it's pretty amazing. Amazingly simple in this regard. That at any point, it's only as far away as us changing from rejecting the word to accepting it, to believing in God, to making him big in our life again. And we talked about that last night in our devotion where who's the God we know? Is it a father that pities his children? Is it a God whose good pleasure it is to give us the kingdom? Because that's important. And if we think of God as a hard man, an unfair man who reaps where he doesn't sow, well, we'll be like the man in the parable who buries his pound in the ground and won't do anything because he thinks God is unfair. But if we know him as the good God that he is, that, that in spite of our mistakes is prepared to offer us forgiveness, if we trust him, if we turn to him, if we repent, well, then he is ready to forgive and to offer us forgiveness. And if we want to see an example of that, a contrast to that, well, we just look at David. And we know how David's life was, where instead of trusting in God's word, he chooses to put that aside and to commit adultery. And then when his conscience pricks him, Instead of confessing and repenting, well, he tries to hide from the problem. And in fear of man, he tries to kill Bathsheba's husband. And then he writes it off. And he writes it off by saying to Joab, when Joab finishes the work for him, he says, oh, don't worry about it. These things happen. It's not your fault. And then he marries Bathsheba, and we know that he doesn't listen until we read Psalm 32 and we read Psalm 51, that God is at work. And eventually, through this parable of Nathan, we get to the point where in that self-examination, Nathan says to us, we are the man. We are guilty. That conscience that is in there 
we need to change. And at that point, David accepts. And very quickly, when he goes through that circle again and he trusts God and he makes God big, he accepts his action. He repents. In that moment, God forgives him. So to summarize what we've seen here so far, this is what this process looks like because it's not linear. It's something that we go through every day and at every point we have to choose. We have to choose life. That God's word is introduced and faith develops. And that faith in God and his word begins to displace the fear of man that is so latent within us and is replaced by a fear of God. And that fear of God allows us to have the conviction to do what is right, to obey, to choose life, to choose his way, even when it's hard, even when the consequences in this life seem large. And we make mistakes and we respond, we pray, and we make principle-based decisions motivated by love. And that process, part of which is having confidence in God, cleanses our conscience because God forgives our sins and then he says you're right with me because we're thinking the same way and that word continues that process of continual washing it's a simple simple straightforward process but I want to take a moment to think about one point and it's here in this process we can go wrong even when we see our sins uh, there's a potential and we acknowledge them as wrong uh, there's a potential that we can get ourselves stuck in a feedback loop all right i'm sure we've had this where there's an echo going on and it just all you hear is the same voices going over and over and over and over again until somebody mutes it all right. Well, this is one of our challenges. And I'll describe what we mean in this next slide. So how do we respond to our conscience? Well, we've said that the word enters and our conscience is pricked just to summarize some of these things. Well, there's three ways we can respond. Now, we might say the right way is I become uh, sorry. No, the wrong way is I become overwhelmed with the gravity of my sin. And I think I can never look people in the face. The sin is too big. God won't forgive me. There's no way I can move forward. And we start to dwell on our inadequacies. I'm so stupid. I keep making the same mistakes over and over again. And then what we do if we follow that path is that we actually turn to coping mechanisms. All right. What we call today escapism. Uh, a very common one is we, we put earphones on. And we try to drive out those voices of feelings of inadequacies. Uh, we maybe turn to whatever our form of entertainment is that allows us to think about anything except our inadequacies. Because as soon as we feel inadequate, we feel hopeless. And we keep hearing those voices, don't we? Uh, well, that... That's because in this process, and this is a real problem, it's a common problem, we will face this, is we've lost sight on God again. We've lost sight and forgotten who he is. Because what God wants us to do when it's, our conscience is pricked is what David does, which is to turn to him and to repent 
and trust in God's grace. Do you really believe that God can and will forgive your sins? That as far as the east is from the west, so our God will remove our sins from us. That as a father pities his children, so our God pities us. Because if we do that and we can really trust in God's grace, then we will find peace. And our conscience is clean and we move forward. And again, the other option, the one we see in Saul, is that we resist our conscience. We excuse our sins. It was the people. It was this. It was that. Uh, it was my circumstances. Uh, and I hardened my heart to cope with the word of God. And eventually I turned myself away from God and my conscience becomes seared. So these are the choices we make. And I think the, the one that we aim for is clear, this middle one. That to find peace and a clean conscience, that we turn to God in faith. And we trust him to be the God he is. And trust that he wants to forgive us our sins and to bring us into his kingdom. Because we won't do it on our own. And, and when our conscience is working this way, and as we've described, what we see in a beautiful example is, if you'll turn with me, let's turn to Romans chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15. Because, I don't know, you, you ever notice that um, there are so many phrases that have made it into to pop culture, um, and and they, they've actually twisted uh, God's word completely. I don't know, when I, when I grew up and I heard... Uh, you know, um, uh, this phrase, you know, that guy is a law to himself. And he's like, he won't listen to anyone. He does whatever he wants. And nobody can tell him what to do. Well, kind of. But if you look in Romans 2 and verse 14 and 15, what he's talking to is he's talking to the Jews. And he's saying, you know, these Gentiles, they never received the law of God. All right. That was given to you. But when they heard it, when they listened to it, and didn't see it as uh, the, the, the thou shalt and the thou shalt not. But they believed it and they saw these principles behind it. Do you know what they did? They were so convicted of it. They didn't need somebody telling them what to do. They were a law to themselves. And look at what it says here. He says, for when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law. They having not the law are a law unto themselves. Which show the work of the law where? Not the thou shalt and the thou shalt not, not the fear of consequences, but the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or excusing one another. So it's not as if they did something and they said, oops, I shouldn't have done that. The law says thou shalt not. I'm going to offer my offering. They thought about it and they understood it and they said, nope. That's not right. I'm not going to go that way. Or, yes, this gives glory to God. And they were compelled to do what's right because they believed it. And this is the power of our conscience in action. And, and the beauty of that is it's because I don't need anybody around me. I could be Joseph in the middle of Egypt, having been betrayed by my family and falsely accused and put in prison. And then I can say, how could I do this thing and sin against God? No one's around to see, but that doesn't matter. 
because my conscience is towards God. I believe him, I trust him, and he's bigger than anything else in my life, and it doesn't matter the consequences. And I'll get thrown in prison if I have to, but I'm going to honor him. And that's the beauty of our conscience, right? And what we all want. We all struggle with that, I think, at times, where it comes to a decision and we think, oh, I should really say something and I don't know what to say, or I should really say something and I know what to say, but I'm embarrassed. Well, that's the opportunity to go back and reflect. It's not a shameful thing. It's an opportunity for growth and training where that power of God, that confidence in him, which will carry us through situations that we can't handle on our own. So that was Romans 2, verse 14. I should have had that up. Um, now, we're going to wrap that up very quickly. All right, and we're going to end up uh, in just a minute. And, and I want to see what I believe is one of the most beautifully captured examples of, of the Apostle Paul looking at this concept. And it's in Galatians chapter 2. I'm sure many of us know it. And it's a beautiful example. If you think of the Apostle Paul, who obeyed the law to a T. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Somebody, in Galatians 2, uh, who, according to the law, as he understood it, was blameless. But when he saw and understood the, the when he understood the importance of a conscience-driven life that was accountable not to what people thought, but was driven by love the end of the commandment which is love faith and a good conscience well this is the end result that we're aiming for this confidence that he has in galatians chapter 2 and verses 19 to 21 and he says i through the law am dead to the law that i might live unto god I'm dead to these empty works, these traditions and these routines that made me look like a good Christian, but of themselves did nothing because they weren't combined with an active conscience. It wasn't a life lived by faith, hope, and love. And so he says, I am crucified with Christ. I die to sin. I don't just try to make an outward show. I died a sin in my life. Nevertheless, I live. I'm not just dead to the thou shalt nots. I live because Christ lives in me. That character, that decision-making process, that example, the what would Jesus do in this situation, that's what's alive in my life. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness came by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And so his life is lived, not on the basis of him earning salvation, but is a confidence in God that if he lives by faith, then God is prepared to forgive him all his sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness complete what is lacking in us, and carry us on to his kingdom. Well, that is the picture we have before us and that we want to look at tonight. It's the ultimate example of how to activate our conscience. It's the realization that we aren't good enough, 
that no amount of good works will save us, but at the same time, that God is good, and God is gracious and merciful and long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, and who forgives on that basis. And because we see the goodness in that, we're compelled to live it, not for you, not for me, not for others around me, but for God. And our life looks like a life of thankfulness. It takes the focus off ourselves and puts it back on God. It gives us liberty to live in hope because we trust him and that he is good enough and that he will reward those who diligently seek him. God delights in voluntary acts of love and obedience extended towards him. And he will suitably reward them. Thank you. Over this uh, weekend in the studies with our young people, we've looked at perhaps, a, for me, one of the most important themes that my sister, uh, my wife, Naomi, has uh, and I have studied during lockdown, and that is the development of our conscience. Uh, it's one of those things what is perhaps most put to test in our virtual situation, where our accountability is where it should be, our accountability to God. And as we've looked through this with uh, the young people, as we studied this together with God's word, we've seen that God has been working and has worked always to develop our conscience through the introduction of his word with the end goal that we live with a clear conscience, with unfeigned love, and a sincere faith. And that process by which the word, when we let it have an effect of our heart, it results in faith. And that faith grows when we receive that word until the fear of God, our reverence and love and honor for him, displaces the fear of man, what others think of us. And that drives our conscience, that conviction, to respond with dependence on God, ob obedience and faith. We respond with prayer and, and a lifestyle which reflects our love for him in faithful obedience. And we've seen that that is the process when we turn to him as David did in his moment of weakness that our conscience can be cleansed. And we walk before God with a clear conscience, which is not based on our own works, on our own accomplishments, but as we know, but by faith in what God can accomplish in us and in his grace, as we've read in Psalm 103, in forgiving all our sins. Well, in our exhortation, we want to take a bit of a different look as we examine ourselves and as we consider our relationship with our God and with our Lord Jesus Christ. 
because as, we, as we've considered together that faith is that key aspect and our faith in God really depends on who we know God to be. Because if we get that wrong, brothers and sisters, then we can end up as the parable of our Lord Jesus Christ with the man who buries his pound in the ground because he is afraid that God is a hard man, an unfair man that has unrealistic expectations, some kind of unrealistic dictator. And so we want to consider and explore the God that is presented to us in scripture, the God who we know as our father. The word heart in scripture is defined as the inner man, the mind, thinking, reflection, determination, conscience, and the seed of emotions and passions. The heart is where our most personal thoughts and feelings come from. God is described as being grieved at his heart because of man's sin. And in man, we find that his heart is evil from its youth. Our heart can fail us for fear. Its anguish can drive us to righteousness. It can smite us with guilt. It is where, scripture says, our judgment is carried. It is what should stir us up to serve God. And it is, as our Lord tells us, that we speak from the abundance of what is in our heart, whether good or bad. And it is from the heart that an individual is to in willingness offer our sacrifices to God. And it is from the heart that prayers to God are made. Now, when we began this study on our own, it was due to a very hard question that we had. A question that we have in those darker moments in our lives where we feel that we are at our lowest. At times that scripture calls a broken heart. And when we looked at the psalmist, we wondered how did they climb out of a spiritual low to reach amazing spiritual heights? How did they get from anger and frustration to trust and triumph? How did their feelings of shame and agony become transformed into confession and confidence? How did they get from tears of despair to shouts of joy and rejoicing? In those dark moments, these individuals of like passions managed to escape from being bound by the cords of death that we call depression. And they were able to return to the light, to escape the drowning depths of sadness and fear and take confidence in the steadfast love of God. But how? And as we examine the Psalms for our answers, one thing becomes clear. There is one thing that these individuals all did. Those that escaped their lows were the same ones that were able to pour out their hearts openly and frankly to their Heavenly Father in prayer in the midst of their trials. And so in our exhortation this morning, we'd like to consider three points. The vital role that prayer plays in trial. The importance of knowing God as a loving, patient Heavenly Father. And the importance of honest communication with God. Let's begin in Psalm 32. We recognize Psalm 32 as the prayer of David after his sins of adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. And what this Psalm, Psalm 32, shows us that the Second Samuel account doesn't address is that David was driven into a deep depression 
after those sins, even before Nathan spoke with him. And Psalm 32 shows us what was going on in David's heart. Perhaps something he didn't understand until after his heart was revealed to him by Nathan. But this is what he says, looking at verse 3 and 4 of Psalm 32. He says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day. For day and night, thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Salah. Now, it's worth looking at that word roaring in verse 3. Naturally, it is in scripture used of lions roaring. But three times this word is used of people in great agony. Job uses this in Job 3 verse 24, where he describes his emotional and physical agony and suffering, where he says that he wished he was never born. Another time this word roaring is used of man is in Psalm 22, which we know is prophetic of Christ's crucifixion. And finally here in Psalm 32, we find the third example. These are very strong, deep, and painful struggles as his conscience is at work. Continuing in Psalm 32, we see that David is not just telling us that he felt so horrible about his mistakes, that he was in such deep pain and anger that he wanted to scream, although he surely did, but rather that he wants us to know that he felt that way because he didn't speak to God. Now let's read that again in its context, reading again from verse 3. When I kept silence... My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto Yahweh, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Salah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters, they shall not come nigh unto him. David tells us that when he didn't speak to God, the result was that he ached and screamed internally all night and day. And then when he stopped hiding from God and started to speak to him, being honest about what he was going through, confessing his sins, God forgave him. And because of that, he exhorts us every one of us to pray to God when we need help because he will save us from drowning in that sorrow. I know we know this is no revelation to us. Even in depression, we know theoretically that we should pray. And yet there are times when perhaps some of us don't feel we can pray. Perhaps we're too ashamed of our mistakes or because we realize that perhaps we shouldn't feel the way we do. And yet we don't know how to change that. Or perhaps we just don't know how we are feeling, why we are angry, or why everything just seems to be going wrong. What greater comfort is there then for us than to see that in those very contexts of one's mistakes and shame, Scripture describes Yahweh as a father. He's a God that showed his love to us while we were yet sinners, as Romans 5 tells us. His purpose is not to destroy men's life, but to give it, Christ tells us in Luke 9. And as a father, he chastens and directs us, guides us, refines us, as we are shaped into jewels for his crown. Let's look at Psalm 103, our reading for this morning, to see examples 
of this language. We were all children once, and many, I'm sure, here have their own. We no doubt recall those moments where we came to our father or mother in fear, having done something wrong by accident or in a moment of weakness or perhaps in selfishness. And we were afraid and ashamed to speak to them about what we've done. Now, as a parent, those of our parents, those that are parents among us will know that feeling of when a child is suffering. All we want them to do is to tell us what's wrong. What are the times when we were ashamed of our tears or in our inability to understand why people have treated us the way they have, not knowing why things have gone wrong? We know we need to talk, but somehow we feel we can't. Well, when we think of God, what is the first characteristic that we think of to describe him? Because I believe that reveals to us where or who we know God to be. So we want to begin in verse 8 of Psalm 103. And it's worth noting, though, throughout the psalm, how he describes God as one who forgives, who heals, who delivers the oppressed. And then in verse 8, he says, Yahweh is merciful and gracious slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not so, dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, like as a father pities his children. So Yahweh pities them that fear him for he knows our frame he remembers that we are dust and why is the psalmist telling us this it's because he knows how we feel when we're down or alone or overcome with sin and trials we may feel abandoned we may feel oppressed we may feel lonely we may feel helpless but god is a father who pities his children he wants to heal us he wants to deliver us he is merciful gracious and he pities us as a father would pity his children that comes to him. Because he knows our frame. He knows that we are dust. Just like we see our own children navigating through childhood, lacking experience, unsure, making mistakes, trying to overcome evil with good, trying to understand and yet unsure of what to do or how to do it. Our God pities us in those moments. <coughs> Well, we're talking about our emotions. And when we turn to the theme of emotions, we find ourselves in a cloudy mix of strong words and scattered thoughts. The feelings are complex and confusing and they affect our attitude, our appetites, our ability to work and even our health. And yet, God has given us the ability to feel, to have emotions. And that's because he too feels love, hate, sadness, joy, anguish, compassion, and jealousy. And in their positive place, they can carry us to wonderful highs of spiritual strength, but they can also bring us down to deep and dark depths of depression and even sin. Well, let's turn to Psalm 107 to see this, this story of our life described for us 
with the analogy of a journey upon the sea. In Psalm 107, we see our spiritual journey as people embarking on a ship that starts out across the sea of life and that would flounder without God's help. In Psalm 107, in verse 23, we begin, They that go down to the sea in ships that do business in great waters, these see the works of Yahweh and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind which lifteth up the waves thereof. They mount up to the heaven and they go down again to the depths. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble. And he brings them out of their distresses. He makes the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad because they be quiet. So he brings them unto their desired haven. Oh, that we would praise Yahweh for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And you can see the emotions flowing. At times the journey goes well with the wind in our sails. Then we get brought up to great heights. And sometimes we plunge down into fearful depths. We feel the waves will crash down upon us and leave our faith shipwrecked. And it's what we do at that moment that is key, isn't it? We need to feel comfortable and ready to cry to God, as the psalmist says. Now, I'm sure this is all sounding rather obvious, and it is. This is nothing new. But as a brother once said to me, it is the principles that are the easiest to understand that are the hardest to apply in our daily life. But the scripture is full of people that cried to God. The Psalms, more than any other book, shows us the highs and lows of the servant of God. And they are put there for us to see in our own low moments so that we can feel confident pouring out our hearts to God. They are there so we, learning from their prayers through patience and comfort of the scriptures, as Paul says, might have hope. Now, when we meet together, either in person or online, as we do right now, we can perhaps and often do try to hide how we are really feeling. Perhaps we know that how we are feeling is not right. Or perhaps we present on a, a mask because we don't want to burden our brothers and sisters. And, and this is how a Christian should appear. Perhaps we're ashamed. And while what is going on in our hearts is something that perhaps we can't share with everyone, we can always share it with God. And the Psalms give us a window into what really goes on inside each one of our minds and hearts. And what is perhaps surprising is that they show us how the individuals are really feeling, regardless of whether these feelings are correct or incorrect, regardless of whether it's right or wrong to have that emotion, to express it that way. But to give an example, and I'm happy to share this list, and if you have more verses, please share them with us after. But here's an example of some of the things that people took to God in prayer and have said to him in the Psalms multiple times. They say to God that I feel like you've forgotten me and won't even look at me. You don't see me. You're far away from me. Your punishments are too heavy for me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. Your anger lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. You've caused my companions to hate me. You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I cannot escape. Sometimes they say, oh God, break the teeth 
in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions. Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits no more to rise. Spare me. Spare me. Why have you forgotten me? Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why are you causing these bad things to happen to us? You've rejected us and disgraced us. You've made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the people. And we haven't even done anything wrong. Wake up. Why are you asleep? Rouse yourself. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? When we read the Psalms, it's easy to forget that these individuals who said these things weren't sharing their feelings with us. They were sharing these feelings with God. They wrote those feelings down and it was God that chose to share their feelings towards him with us. Isn't that amazing that these individuals felt that they could, without pride and with reverence, speak openly to God about where they were spiritually at that moment? They didn't just pray for forgiveness or tell God when they were feeling happy. They didn't go to God after they had figured out their problems or were in a good state again. Yes, they went to him in fear. They went to him with open hearts, with doubts and confusions, with anger and fear. And they asked for answers and asked for help in changing those feelings. They told him they felt distant because they wanted to be closer to him. And they didn't see how they could get to that state. These Psalms help us to understand that when we find ourselves feeling the same way, we're not alone in these feelings. And perhaps most importantly, they show us that God wants us to feel comfortable sharing those feelings with him. He wants to hear about all our emotions. So often we, we just don't want to talk about it. Perhaps we feel awkward or angry or defensive. What can be immensely comforting is that not only did God listen to these prayers of his children and hear them through and help them through their trials, not only did he answer those imperfect prayers, brothers and sisters, but he, the righteous and true God, the creator of heaven and earth, said, all right, David, all right, Ethan, I'm going to help you. But I want men and women of all ages to know that not only did you feel that way, but that when you did, you came to me in prayer and you told me how you felt. These men were open with God because they needed help with their emotions, not because they had mastered them. They struggled with their conscience and they knew that the only answer was God. We have these Psalms here because God felt it important to share with us the lessons of these individuals and show us clearly that individuals of faith felt comfortable, confident, and trusting enough to tell God exactly where they were. Now let's take a look at Psalm 142, if we're struggling with this, and we all will. In Psalm 142, we find David in a cave, fleeing from Saul and surrounded by men who urged him to kill the Lord's anointed. The men with David at that time were the discontents, the escapees, and they were dragging him down spiritually. And so he prays to God. He says in Psalm 142, verse 1, which is a maskal of David, a prayer when he was in, his, in the cave, I cried unto Yahweh with my voice, 
With my voice unto Yahweh did I make my supplication. I poured out my complaint before him. I showed him my trouble when my spirit was overwhelmed within me. Then you knew my path. David poured out his complaint. Now, to take a moment, that word complaint is actually the word musing or meditation. He's thinking these through. He hasn't figured it out. It's a word that comes up five times in Job's life when he's talking about his own sorrows. Hannah uses this word when she pours out her complaint and grief before God. And the psalmists use it five times in other contexts. They poured out their meditations. These individuals had all these thoughts sloshing back and forth in their heads, and they took them. They took them all and just poured them out before God. All of those emotions. All of those doubts, all of that trust, and all of that fear. Now, if we think about the analogy of pouring something out, what would be the opposite of pouring out our complaints, brothers and sisters and young people? Well, it would be keeping it in. It would be bottling it up, wouldn't it? And while there may be a time to bottle up some emotions when talking to some people, that's not the case with God. He wants us to pour out our musings. We let God know our path, where we think we're headed, where we are, where we want to be. When we feel overwhelmed, as he says in verse 3, that's the time to pour out everything in our heads to God in prayer because he wants to hear. You can take note of this passage. We won't turn it up. But Jeremiah tells us to pray in even stronger words in Lamentations 2, verses 18 and 19, where he says, Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears run down like a river day and night. Give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thine eye cease. Arise, cry out in the night in the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the life of thy young children. The faint for hunger in the top of every street. That's desperation, brothers and sisters. We felt that in our lives. Well, let's turn to James for a moment. In James chapter 5, we know the context of persecution and pride and the importance of prayer and patience in James' message and the power of prayer. In James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, we read that Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three months and three years and six months. And he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. What is God trying to tell us by mentioning us this to us in James? Well, in James 5 verse 17, if we were to look at it in, in the English Standard Version, it reads more clearly. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That's his point. God wants to remind us that Elijah, despite being a man with a nature like ours, despite having the same passions, the same weaknesses, despite having told God at one point that he was thought he was the only faithful person left, that when he prayed to God and leaned on him, that God heard. Now, this encouragement to pray to God about how we are feeling and what we are struggling with is also reinforced in the book, reinforced in the book of Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians in chapter four, where 
and I'm sure we could quote this, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful, but it's not the word careful, it's the word anxious. Troubled with cares. He says, don't stay in that state of anxiety, bottling up our emotions. He says that if you want to resolve it in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. We ask because we have a need and we have no way of meeting that need, but God does. And so we turn to him. Well, let's conclude, brothers and sisters, in Hebrews chapter 4. As we turn our focus to the remembrance of the work of our God in our Lord Jesus Christ, we reflect on the encouragement that God gives us to consider him as a father who wants to help his children and who wants to give them good things. He shows us in the Psalms that we can approach him in reverent openness. He knows our frame. He understands that we're dust. In fact, he tells us to come before him with openness, doesn't he? Pouring out our hearts like water in time of need. That's when we need his grace and help. And that is exactly, brothers and sisters, what our Lord Jesus Christ did in his most ardent trial. He took everything to his father in prayer. Reading verse 12 of Hebrews 4. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The word reveals our hearts. It shows us what we are feeling, what we are thinking. It lays it all open and bare, and often that hurts. Our conscience pricks our hearts, and we can be afraid to open up. And the reality is that God knows. He knows before we do what is in our hearts, as the hymn that we just sung said. Why should we pretend he doesn't know and hide it from our conversations with him? And he goes on to turn our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, saying, that seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And this is the Son of God who we remember now, who battled that same nature we do. And he overcame. Because in those times of great agony and distress, he offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. And he was heard in that he feared. Let us therefore, brothers and sisters, now together come boldly or openly, as the word means, unto the throne of grace that we so desperately need that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thank you very much.
Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.